Thank you, Kate. That was lovely. I asked my grandson, Jerry, if God was like a grandpa, and he said no. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> you can bring up the first slide. The night Max wore his wolf suit and made mischief of one kind and another, his mother called him Wild Thing, and Max said, I'll eat you up. So he was sent to bed without eating anything. Now, most of you probably don't know there's a parallel story in the life of Jesus. It goes, on the Sabbath day, when Jesus made mischief by restoring sight to a man who had been blind from birth, the pastors and priests cried, give glory to God, we know this man is a sinner. And both of these stories, power, in the first in the form of mother, and in the second in the form of the pastors and priests, the religionists, are trying to affix a label of disparagement to someone who is misbehaving. Because if they do, if they successfully affix this label to the troublemaker, it will both justify, validate, condone their feelings towards the troublemaker, and it will demand a particular course of action. In the case of Max, it's <coughs> feeling angry and sending him to bed without any food. In the case of Jesus, if he is successfully labeled as a sinner, it diminishes him lowers his standing in the eyes of the people, justifies exclusion, perhaps expulsion, ultimately execution. Now, in the case of Max, mom is successful. He is called wild thing, and he is sent to bed without supper. And so he, having been thus labeled, follows a well-worn path. <clears throat> that very night, in Max's room, a forest grew and grew and grew until his ceiling hung with vines and the walls became the world all around. And an ocean tumbled by with a private boat for Max and he sailed off through night and day, and in and out of weeks, and almost over a year, to where the wild things are. And when he came to the place where the wild things are, they roared their terrible roars, and gnashed their terrible teeth, and rolled their terrible eyes, and showed their terrible claws, till Max said, be still and tamed them with the magic trick 
of staring into all their yellow eyes without blinking once. And they were frightened and called him the most wild thing of all and made him king of all wild things. And now, cried Max, let the wild rumpus start. And so they rumpus through the night until the morning when it says, Now stop, Max said, and sent the wild things off to bed without their supper. And Max, the king of all wild things, was lonely and wanted to be where someone loved him best of all. (laughs) Now, I'm convinced that this is the second best book of all time. (laughs) It is the gift that keeps on giving. So Max is declared to be, by power, a wild thing. So he has no choice, right, about this new identity. And in response, however well it fits or doesn't, he just says, okay, I'm going to go all in. If I am a wild thing, I am not just going to be a wild thing. I am going to become the wildest wild thing. I am going to become king of all wild things. I am going to fully inhabit this identity that has been placed on me by mother. And so he lives it. He wins at it. He is successful at being a wild thing. But in the end... After all his success with it, he finds himself lonely. It is empty. He is alone and he is hungry. So this whole endeavor amongst you and I as human beings of affixing labels to things is essential to development, right? It's a thing that we as parents have to teach our children. Children have to learn how to attach these symbolic representations, these squiggly lines that form written words, these vocalizations. We have to be able to attach them to things, to objects, to people, to actions, if we are going to communicate at all, if we are going to be social beings, we have to be able to represent things in this way. At the same time, it is instantly inadequate and fraught. So except perhaps in the realm of mathematics, right, where two is two. It is only two, it is perfectly two, it is precisely two, it is always two, and the mathematicians in the room will probably find me afterwards and say, yeah, it's actually not that good, but we're going with it. (laughs) All other representations are immediately, first of all, inadequate. So if I say to you, sunset, you kind of know what I mean, but it is completely not up to the task. The word sunset cannot capture all sunsets. It cannot capture the, the majesty of sunsets, 
the many sunsets that occur, and it is the same with all words. All words are going to come up short. And so if we start to uh, think of words about people, for example, police officer, mother, father, your name. You and I kind of know what we mean, and it's essential to communication, but it's also completely inadequate. (laughs) If somebody says to you the name Tom, that in no way captures the totality of my being. And even if it were to capture the totality of my being right now, it won't in one second from now because I will have moved on. And this inadequacy becomes fraught because almost all words that are important to us come to carry emotional content, emotional valence, and they often come to carry Uh, instructions about what to do in response to the ascribing of that label. So if I start to use words about people like bully or narcissist or villain, criminal, felon, or words even on the positive side, saint, hero, icon, paragon of virtue. As I say those words to you, you are going to have certain emotions that you have come to associate with them. And so when you use them to describe a person to somebody else, your expectation or your implicit ask is, I want you also to have those same emotions about this person thus labeled. And they're also going to carry instructions, sometimes societally codified instructions about what to do. Felon, bully, Saint, virtuous one, right? Even these words of positivity towards a person thus labeled tell you to coat them with a certain amount of protection, right? Hands off of the hero. And it becomes something that's particularly in play in times of conflict like what we're experiencing now as we watch war rage in the world around us. A part of the task is to correctly describe what is going on. Who are the participants? How do we describe them? How do we describe their actions? It's a necessary endeavor in communicating. The challenge becomes that in these events that are so emotionally laden, so generated by violence and conflict, it can quickly become a competition of labeling. Who is the first to assign the label of disparagement to a particular individual or to a particular act? And again, it's not that that is a wrong endeavor, it's just that if we go into it without awareness of the whole construct of power and demand that lies behind it, we can quickly find ourselves in trouble with each other. And so Jesus himself experienced this. So in this story, in the story of Jesus, 
where the religionists are trying to label him as sinner, he is deeply aware of this human social practice and of the kinds of problems that it can cause. Jesus, the writers who tell his stories, the people gathered around him. And so in this story of Jesus, which is told in John chapter 9, he has restored sight to a man who had been blind. He does it on the Sabbath. And this is, in the middle of the story, how things play out. The, it says, they, meaning the pastors and priests, therefore a second time called to themselves the man who had been blind. And they said to him, give glory to God, which means tell the truth on oath, say what we want you to say. Give glory to God. We have known that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And so the man, I think, detecting what was up, detecting the desire of the religionists to affix this label to Jesus so that they can demand certain feelings towards him and actions against him, the man says, if he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that I was blind, but now I see. <laughs> So he takes a very interesting task. He just says, I'm not going to play your game. I am not going to engage in this practice of trying to ascribe labels to people. I'm just going to look at the data. I'm just going to describe what it is that actually happened. And I have one big data point. <laughs> uh, namely, I can see now. And so he just sort of shoves to the side the whole practice of labeling as an endeavor because he is aware of how fraught it is in this moment that it is an attempt by power to control a person they don't like. And this is a practice of Jesus with this particular label across the course of his life. There are half a dozen stories and instances of Jesus interacting with this specific construct, sin, sinner, sinfulness. There's a woman who barges in on a dinner of the religionists who is sinful. Jesus exalts her and diminishes the pastors and priests. There's Zacchaeus, the tax collector, to whose home Jesus goes for dinner. Jesus himself is known as a glutton and a drunkard, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus attends a banquet of sinners hosted by a sinner and tells the religionists, I'm really happy here, but you probably wouldn't be. And each and every time, what Jesus is doing, he is not saying the labels to these people are accurate. These are actually, in a codified sense, bad people. They have misbehaved in a way that's reprehensible, morally corrupt. Nonetheless, because I am a lovely human being, I am wonderful and magnanimous, I am going to associate with them, right? Jesus is not saying, I am kind to bad people, hmm, awesome me. Every time Jesus is saying, this whole practice is corrupt, 
It is bankrupt. This label has been so co-opted by power that it is useless. And the practice must be demolished. This whole way of doing human interaction has to be done away with, destroyed, teared down. We cannot practice this kind of labeling anymore. In fact, I would say the only time Jesus uses this label unironically is when he is arrested. The pastors and priests and their military forces are coming to arrest Jesus. And he says, now is the Son of Man handed over to sinners. It's like, oh, <laughs> okay, there's where it applies. And so the invitation from Jesus is for you and I to inhabit this complicated reality. I remember for me, when I was a teenager, junior high and high school, I think the label that would fit me best would have been kind of geek nerd, right? The problem is that as a teenager, I'm pretty sure all labels are pejorative. There aren't any good ones. Nobody wants to inhabit any label that they're given. For me, the labels in play in my high school years would have been geek nerd, gearhead, jock, stoner, brain, right? <laughs> like, None of us want to inhabit any of those. They're all negative. And so for me, as I look back, I pushed away at that, which meant both that there were actually some of those things about that label that I would have given the thumbs up to looking back. Like, yeah, that is kind of me. You know, <clears throat> I do have sort of fringe interests. And I'm a little bit socially awkward. And maybe my fashion sense isn't the best. But I'm okay with that. But I pushed away at it. And so I pushed away things that could have accurately reflected who I was. And I inhabited a space that was not true to myself. I also lived with the sense of a diminished sense of self because of that label coming to me. Right? And this is a thing that manifests going forward for all of us as we inhabit labels, as we put labels onto others, as we wrestle with the whole construct. Even coming into adulthood then as I encountered other labels like racist or patriarch. Things where I, of course, pushed them away because nobody wants to be labeled with them until I had enough sense of self to say, that's actually true. That's accurate. What does that mean? What do I do with that? How do I respond to that? And so Jesus deconstructs the whole thing. And then God, and I'll close with this story, God gives one of the best examples of how to inhabit this complicated tension between using words to describe things and the struggle with labels. Moses is off in the wilderness, okay? He's been 40 years in the middle of nowhere. He's in northern Idaho, right? He's at that, like, the tip of Idaho, almost to the border of Canada. Who has ever been there? I don't know. <laughs> but so he is, in, he is in northern Idaho with the sheep, okay? <laughs> and for 40 years, 
And he's walking along one day, and he sees a shrub that's burning. And I have to say, I feel more affinity or sympathy for Moses than I have in the past when I've encountered this story. Because Moses, for his first 40 years, inhabited Egypt. And Egypt is amazing. It's powerful, and it has big buildings and lots of money, tons of gold, and armies, powerful armies. And Egypt has amazing gods running the whole thing. Like, they are powerful. They run the Nile, and they control the rain and the sun going across the sky, and they've produced this incredible civilization. When Pharaoh is installed, Pharaoh becomes a god. And one of the things about the gods is they all have names. Names that describe them, that capture their realm of influence. Pharaoh takes on the name of gods. And so so Moses is in the desert in the middle of nowhere and a shrub bursts into flames. And the shrub speaks to Moses and says, I'm God. (laughs) And you got to remember, Moses has never encountered this God before this moment. Moses does not know this deity And so the God says to Moses, hey, you and me, we're going to Egypt, and we're going to overthrow Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt, and we're going to set the people, the Hebrew people, free. And in my growing up, we always kind of disparaged Moses because of his lack of faith. It's like, there's a bush, and it's not being consumed. How can you doubt? And if I'm Moses, I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me, right? (laughs) That's a neat magic trick, burning in a little bush and it doesn't get consumed. But if that's all you got, and me, and we're going to do what? (laughs) And in the midst of it, Moses asks a question. It says, Moses said to God, he's channeling his insecurity, he's planning ahead. If I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So Moses is like, oh my goodness, I'm going to go to the Hebrew people and I'm going to say, yeah, this God who can, he can cause a fire, like kind of a glorified campfire, and the wood isn't consumed, and he and me, we're going to free you. So he says, what at least am I going to tell them your name is? And it says, God said to Moses, these eternal words, I am who I am, which also means I will be who I will be. He said further, thus shall you say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. And so God is saying, I don't play that game. I will not be labeled. I cannot be contained in this thing that you would try to affix to me. It cannot describe me. Even if it could describe me now, it will not describe me one minute from now. But then God goes on. And this is what is so often lost. It says then, God also said to Moses, thus shall you say to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. That is my name forever, and this my title for all generations. So it's like God is saying, foundationally, that whole thing doesn't work. That said, I know you guys need a name. This is how you work, and it is an essential component of doing human communication. So, Yahweh, that's what you can call me. 
And so I think the invitation to us this morning is to inhabit fully this complicated reality of who we are, of how we describe each other, of how we describe what we do, the terms, the labels that we affix, aware of their necessity, but also of their deep potential for getting caught up in systems of power and control and demand, and that they are essential, but always less than what we would want them to be. So as we go forward, that's a part of what God invites us into. We are now going to shift to communion and to worship, and Amy Kraber is going to lead us in our practice of communion this morning.